Well, if you're a guest with us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. We are studying the book of Romans, and I want to invite all of you to turn to Romans chapter 1 today. We return to Romans chapter 1 to explore one crucial truth found in a single verse in Romans chapter 1, that is verse 17. As I pointed out last time, Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 are Paul's thematic statement for the letter, and so I want to read them together, even though we'll focus on verse 17 today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you once again today now to ask specifically that you would enable us to grasp these words, your words, what a fathomless book the Bible is. O Spirit, to whom we have just sung, open our hearts and our minds. In your name we ask these things, amen. It was in the year 1518 that Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk and the great reformer discovered the gospel in the book of Romans. In his own words, he had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But even though he had been captivated, he writes, quote, a single word in chapter one stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God. I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God, the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. And so Martin Luther believed on Christ and was relieved of his rage and his guilt all from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And his conversion testifies to the very power that these verses claim and explain. And so does my conversion. And so does everyone's who belongs to Jesus Christ. If we follow Paul's thought here, verse 17 is an explanation of verse 16. 
in that it tells us how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, literally being revealed from faith for faith. Verse 16 tells us that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. The gospel is the word of God through which God exerts his power to save us. This saving us means ultimately delivering us from his own wrath which we have deserved. But what is the gospel's content? In other words, if the gospel is God's word, what does it say? What is its message? Today I want you to see from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, how the gospel is God's power to save us. First of all, we see that The gospel is God's power to save us because it reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Now, what is the righteousness of God? For many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is that righteousness is the opposite of wickedness. And so to be righteous is to do what's right and good morally and to not do what is morally wrong or bad. And God is righteous in this way, of course. Righteousness is one of God's attributes. It is even right to say that God determines right from wrong, and God always perfectly is consistent with his own character. In fact, it is wrong for us to think of some standard of right and wrong existing outside of God, as if we can measure God by some uh, standard, according to some standard, outside of himself. This is why we as people, as human beings, sometimes God is not fair. Or God couldn't be loving It's because we see this standard of what is right and what is fair, what is just, what is loving, and we measure God by that. But the reality is that God establishes what that is by who he is, not something outside of himself. That's an illusion. It is a false foundation for thinking right and wrong or right and wrong because God has determined what is right and what is wrong. So when the Bible speaks of God's righteousness then as one of his attributes, it speaks of either God's justice or his covenant faithfulness. Now, just to give you a couple of of, examples, Scriptures that connect these things, God dispenses justice, always judging rightly. For example, Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Okay, so God in dispensing justice, 
establishes his throne, and he is always right. When we think of human justice, we can only get so far, can't we? Think about the, the, uh, the turmoil that the recent uh, selection of Brett Kavanaugh had in this country, that it caused in this country. And despite the various accusations and the way it played out, the fact that we're talking about someone who sits on the highest court of our land uh, is a passionate matter for this country. Because those in positions of judging, of declaring, dropping that gavel and saying guilty or not guilty, constitutional or unconstitutional, is a power that affects everybody in our nation. And when we go to court, we want justice. We want victims to have justice. Those who have truly been wrong, against whom crimes have been committed, we want that for ourselves and we want that for others. Is one of the things that makes our land, despite all of its, its division and turmoil, makes it great is our justice system. You ask people from other countries about their justice systems, and they will tell you how great America is despite all of its warts and its faults. But my goal here is not to exalt America. My point is to say that we understand we want justice, but sometimes as human beings, justice falls short. It falls flat because Our judges, those who are dispensing judges, don't know everything. They don't have all power. They don't have all knowledge. God does. He's the king. He is the capital J judge. And when he establishes his throne to to assert justice, to dispense justice, he does so in righteousness. There is no failure There is no shortcoming in his justice. The Bible also says that God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his promises. That is his covenant faithfulness. An example of this would be Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Notice how the psalmist connects salvation, righteousness, and faithfulness. Now, these are just a couple of examples here. There are many, many more. I've just chosen one of each to show you how this this concept of righteousness gets played out in the attributes of God. This righteousness then of his faithfulness means that God never never deviates from his own standards of his own promises. He always squares up with his word. So then, if Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, means that God's righteousness is... He's using it as this attribute. He's using it in this way. Then he's saying that the gospel displays this attribute of God, his justice or his faithfulness to his promises. And this, would, this could make sense, couldn't it? That the gospel reveals God's faithfulness to his own promises. 
That certainly is the fulfilling of the gospel. But in Romans 1.17, it also makes a lot of sense to understand the righteousness of God as the saving action of God. And this, I think, is the right way to understand what Paul is getting at with this phrase, the righteousness of God. It is the saving action of God. In other words, God from his throne establishes right in creation by intervening to save his people. So we read in Psalm 51 verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Your righteousness. Isaiah chapter 46, the first part of verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. This is God speaking. This is Yahweh speaking. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. God promising, saying, I am now intervening to save. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 23, God declares through Isaiah, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now this is what Paul is talking about. And I want to borrow then this definition from a New Testament scholar by the name of Douglas Moo. He puts it so simply and clearly that we're just, I'm just going to use it. The righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into relationship with himself. That is what is meant here. It is the act of God by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. That is the righteousness of God. In the gospel, this righteousness, the saving act of God, is revealed. It's revealed. Or better is, is being revealed. It is presently being revealed, which means every time the gospel is proclaimed, God's righteousness is being revealed anew, again. It is an ongoing revelation. Now, the word revealed means to uncover something that is hidden. And so what Paul is saying is the gospel uncovers, makes clear the righteousness of God. It is uncovering something hidden. It is making something known that otherwise could not be known. 
without the gospel revealing the righteousness of God, we could never grasp it. We could never see it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because it makes the righteousness of God known. The gospel makes known God's saving plan and action. And, watch this, it actually unfolds it in history and how it is accomplished, explains how God has done it. That plan and work is all captured in this phrase, the righteousness of God. And the gospel both makes it known, and this is the amazing thing, it makes it a reality by accomplishing that work in history. That's what Paul is saying. By it reveals the righteousness of God. It brings the righteousness of God to bear. That's how it is the power of God for salvation. It doesn't just tell us about salvation. It saves us. Now, how does it do that? How does it do that? Now, let's remember our definition. The righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. How does revealing, though, the righteousness of God bring us into a right relationship with himself? The answer to that question is also the righteousness of God. Because God, listen, God saves us by granting his righteousness to us. He gives us a status of righteousness. He makes us right before him. Now, Paul is going to, this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg in the book of Romans cons, uh, regarding this truth that God makes us righteous. Paul will use the word frequently justification, justify. It's the same word. It's just the verb, instead of righteousness, it is to make right, to justify somebody. What Paul pictures then is the judge dispensing justice, sitting on his throne in his great royal courtroom and granting his righteousness, declaring us to be right, even though we are guilty. Now, how God does that is what Paul's going to unfold. But this is also captured in this phrase, the righteousness of God. So Paul will go on to explain in a lot more detail what this means and how it works. But this, too, is the righteousness of God that the gospel is revealing. So we should change our definition slightly. God's righteousness, then is the act by which God makes us righteous to bring us into a right relationship with himself. It has to be. And the picture then is that unless God does this, we stand before him guilty. That we stand before him condemned. 
and thus sentenced to wrath. And when we talk about salvation, we are talking about salvation from that wrath. And this picture helps explain how Paul, when he talks about salvation, he talks about both now and the future, being saved from the future wrath. Because right now, every human being stands before God. And every human being is declared guilty and condemned unless God makes that person right in his own sight. And if he declares them right in his own sight, they are right then, now, righteous before God, justified before God, even though it is not until the future when God's wrath is enacted from the sentencing that they will actually be delivered because they have already been declared righteous. Makes sense. That is being made right before God. So we have changed our definition, and I want you to know, it is this understanding, this understanding of this truth that caused Martin Luther to find in Romans 1, verse 17, a gate to paradise. That was the answer to his rage. That was the answer to his guilt. Is when he, he, he originally read this phrase, the righteousness of God, as God's justice dispensed in his courtroom, which could only mean condemnation for a sinner. And Martin Luther knew he was a sinner. And when he realized that this declaration, this revealing of the righteousness of God was actually a revelation of God granting us righteousness instead of condemnation, that is when Martin Luther went, paradise, there is salvation. He came to grips with the righteousness of God as God's way of making us right with him and therefore saving us from the wrath that we deserve. The gospel is the power of God for salvation first by revealing the righteousness of God. Now, let's pause for a second. Why the righteousness of God? Does that surprise anybody? What would we have expected If we wanted to hear a message that gave us hope, we would have expected something like the love of God, wouldn't we? For in it, the love of God is revealed from faith for faith. Love is part of the gospel. It's at the heart of it. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, Verse, uh, let's see here. Verses six and following. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the love. 
But you see, the love of God cannot violate the righteousness of God, his attributes, his justice, what his righteousness and holiness demands in terms of punishment for sin and rebellion. And so the love of God depends upon the righteousness of God, do you see? For God to say, I love you, even though you're a sinner, I'm going to accept you without making us right, is for God to take our sin and our rebellion and sweep it under the carpet. It is to act with injustice in his divine courtroom. It is to violate justice. It is to violate what is right. It is to violate his own faithfulness. For us to know his love, for him to grant upon us love, God must declare us to be right. Now, he has shown his love. He has loved us. He sent Christ to die because he loved us. But that death had to happen, didn't it? And that's what Paul is going to go on in Romans to, to just unpack all of the beauty of why Christ died to make us right before God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, first, by revealing the righteousness of God. Secondly, the gospel is the power of God to save us because the gospel reveals the preeminence of faith the preeminence of faith. If God has acted in righteousness by intervening to save people, and God saves people by making them righteous, then how can someone be made righteous before God? How can someone obtain that righteousness? By faith. It's what the gospel declares. By faith. Now, Paul has just said in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he makes the point to the Jew first and to the Greek, but whether you're Jew or Greek or anything else, faith is preeminent. It is necessary in God's plan of redemption. Faith must be. And here Paul uses this mysterious expression, from faith, for faith, or from faith to faith. So if you happen to have a New American Standard version or a Christian Standard Bible, which is a newer version, by the way, that's very good, a King James Version, they all say from faith to faith. This is probably better. And there are a few ideas for what Paul means with this phrase. It's, it's clearly an idiom. It's a, it's a word picture. And it means something like, from beginning to end, it's all about faith. From beginning to end, faith. In other words, the gospel reveals that only faith can put us into a right relationship with God. And this truth, we've mentioned Martin Luther this morning, takes us all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. That this was one of the truths that divided 
the reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. They said, sola fide, by faith alone, not faith in Jesus plus this, plus that, plus this, but faith alone and only faith. We add no merit to faith to earn or to gain God's righteousness, that status before him. It was that that caused such a great division, one of the things, the first thing actually, that caused such a great division between the reformers and the Catholic Church. But Paul is making the point here that this has always been the case from faith to faith. This is part of the meaning of this phrase. This is why Paul will go into a lengthy explanation of Abraham's faith in chapter 4. That Abraham was declared righteous by God when Abraham believed God. Abraham didn't understand the cross and the crucifixion and all that was to come. But that when God made Abraham a promise, Abraham believed him and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's coming up in chapter 4. He will explain that this is the case for all of us. And it is why he quotes the prophet of Habakkuk here. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, at the time that Habakkuk makes this declaration, the kingdom of Judah is facing certain invasion and destruction from the Babylonians and facing exile, which God has told them is going to happen. He's told them many times. And in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk sees this, uh, actually begins by looking at all of the injustice and all of the corruption in the nation of Israel, in the kingdom of Judah. And he cries out to God for vindication, for justice, for righteousness. And the Lord says, you got it, Habakkuk. I'm going to, I'm going to send the Babylonians in. And they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to take away everybody. It's going to be bad. And Habakkuk says, okay, but wait a second. The Babylonians are more wicked and evil than your own people why would you use a more wicked and exalt a more wicked people to punish your people who, yes, are failing in their covenant, but not as wicked as the Babylonians? And God in his righteousness says, well, I'll deal with the Babylonians also. Don't worry. I will, I will dispense justice. But Judah and Habakkuk are still facing this horrific coming invasion destruction, and exile. And this declaration is made in the context of someone who will be right before God in the midst of all of this destruction will be the one who trusts him. 
It'll be the person who believes him. And Habakkuk chapter 3 is this song, Habakkuk's song of faith, in which he, he says it doesn't matter if there's no cattle in the stall, if the, if the olive branch dies and there's no produce, there are no crops, there's nothing. I will trust in you. I'll believe in you. Paul takes up this prophecy and reveals that it speaks to something far bigger than Habakkuk understood. Far more eternal than Habakkuk's situation. In these words, God's prescription for being made right with him for every person in every age is faith. Trusting God. And so Paul, as an apostle, takes this verse and he says, this applies to today. And you see, this is part of what Paul means by from faith to faith. It was faith then, it is faith now. That has not changed. Whoever would be righteous, will be the one who believes God, who trusts him from faith to faith. And so the conclusion then is if we would know salvation, we must believe God. We must trust him. And so the question then becomes this for every person. Do you believe God? Do you believe him? Or another way of asking the question would be, do you believe God is trustworthy? Do you believe God is trustworthy? Do you believe that when God says, if you will trust me, I will save you, do you believe him? To say no is unbelief. To say no is to persist in the very rebellion and the very sin that has deserved us God's wrath. To say, I'm not sure. To say, I don't reject it, but I don't, I'm not sure I buy into it, is unbelief. It is also to persist in rejecting what God has clearly said. To say, you know what, look, I've got no, I've got no beef with the Christian faith. I've got no beef with God. I'm okay with him. He's okay with me. That's okay for you is unbelief. It is one more expression of rebellion and persisting in rejection of the God who has loved you and made a way for you to be made right before him. To say, yes, God is trustworthy is to believe him 
It's to exercise faith and to find salvation. Let's pray. Lord, your word is deep and fathomless, and yet it is so clear. And God, you have displayed your mercy even in revealing this to us. That the gospel reveals your righteousness. And that it is not just your righteousness that condemns, that declares us guilty, but a righteousness that has made a way to save us, has made a way for us to know your love, to, to come under your mercy, and that is to stand before you in your courtroom and be declared right. And Lord, we rejoice in these truths because there are some truths worth dying for. Lord, we praise you and we worship you as your people and we go forth this morning as your people who have been made right before you. Amen.